Hi, this is Marcia Epstein on Talk With Me, and I am in Lawrence, Kansas, and I'm always excited to do the show. And I'm confused by the time of the year, but that's my norm. We're recording on September 25th of 2017, and I'm thinking, wait, how did it get to be September? And wait, before I know it, it's going to be next March or something, you know? We are into the autumn season, although here in Lawrence, Kansas, it doesn't quite feel like that. But there's so much cool stuff going on related to art events of different kinds. And, and that's something I'm thinking, like, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. I hope it's like that for you wherever you are. And I hope that you get out and do some of those things, some of them being art things, some of them being other community things. And if you've listened to me a few times, you know, and I'm big on nature, getting outside, look around, experience what your senses are telling you about what's going on around you, this, the way things smell and look and the way the air feels on your skin, you know. Wherever you are, it may be that things are looking a little different now than they did a couple months ago. And it's such a great gift to yourself to be able to slow down and pay attention to what's going on right there, then and now. And when you start drifting back to all those things I've got to do, I'm thinking about this, I'm concerned about this, it's like, cool, there you are. But when you can pull yourself back in, it's another kind of a restful, helpful, recharging experience. Um, ours recently has included some time in a kayak. Two people and a dog in a kayak. It's quite an adventure, actually. We make it easy. It's all good. Anyway, I get to do this cool thing called Talk With Me with people who are in lots of different places, who are people who I've connected with and other people I've connected with. And so today, my guest is somebody who's joining us from the Pittsburgh area. And that connection came through Chris Collins and in part through a series called The Bridge Series that Jason Baldinger and Chris Collins are involved with. And this person who we're going to talk with today is one of the people who is instrumental in that and lots of other good stuff, a lot of which involves writing. So I get to introduce somebody as I get to know her, and you do too. Welcome, Disha Filia. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Marcia, for having me. Thank you very much. Glad to do this. You, you do. Uh, you know, when I've looked at, you know, sort of what some of your your involvements are, and then of course there's that Facebook thing. Going, oh, and you know Natasha Elias Green, and yeah, and all these little connections. Like, oh, go, go, go. Anyway, so before I just become all fangirl on you, how about you tell us a little bit about you? Gosh, let's see. Um. I, I'll start by saying I'm a person in transition. So until last year, I was a full-time freelance writer. Uh, I write nonfiction and fiction. And um, I also did uh, editing as a freelancer. Um, so in addition to writing for publications, I would uh, have clients who were either individuals or nonprofits or, or corporate clients. So I pretty much did it all for about uh, a dozen years. and. I called it um, creating a patchwork quilt of income. So um, <laughs> that's, that's what I did for a really long time. Um, and then I got the opportunity last year to have a bit more um, financial stability. And I, I took a job in corporate communications for, um, uh, for a, a very large bank. And, um, and it's given me the stability that I needed as well as 
uh, still an opportunity to use my skill set, which is writing and editing. So I still do that mm-hmm. uh, in that in my day job, um, and it has freed me up actually to do more of the kind of writing that I've always wanted to do um, that I was doing the least amount of in uh, that dozen years, which is fiction writing. So this has been, um, you know, I've gone corporate, but I've also returned to fiction. So that's where I am right now. Um, But then I have an opportunity to do two things that are completely brand new genres for me Mm -hmm. (laughs) that um, I'm, um, you know, in the process of, um, one, I've auditioned for it's a writer for for hire um, job in a genre that I've never written in, and I'm waiting to hear back about that. And I've also had the opportunity, I've been asked, to contribute to um, a comic book series cool. uh, that focuses on stories of Holocaust survivors. So oh, that's wow. something that's in process right now as well. So I have a lot going on right now um, yeah. as I'm working on um, a short story collection. And I, had a, I have a novel that has been like a decade in the making. And I've been thinking a lot lately that I might have to let that go or it may take a different form. It may mm-hmm. take a screenplay form or something like that. Um, I, so I'm really into, you know, not being held down by genres right now and, and just looking at pieces and trying new things and, and building new new writing muscles. That's wonderful. And that's inspiring. And it's a, an important reminder for people. It's like, so evolve, you know, that's part of the deal. It's not like this is what I do and I always do it the right. same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always love to back up with people and get some sense of this this writing. Like when when did some kind of writing become something that you realize is part of who you are, something that you need to be doing? Well, when I, you know, going way way back when I was um a kid, um I enjoyed writing and I enjoyed writing stories. Um and I eventually grew up to be a first-generation college student. And so writing was not, in my view, a real job. You know, a real job is one where, you know, you go to college and you make a lot of money and, and then your family doesn't have to take care of you anymore. Like, that's the whole point of, of being, you know, upwardly mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never at that time even gave a thought to writing as, uh, as a career. Um, and so I tried a corporate career right after college and hated that. And then I went back and uh, got my master's in teaching, loved teaching. I taught for a couple of years and ended up relocating to Pittsburgh where, um, my ex-husband, uh, is from. And, um, we started, um, to have a family and when we started a family and, um, and so I didn't go back to teaching um, once my oldest daughter was born. And when I, after I had my daughter, I decided to be a stay at home mom. That was really important to me. Um, but I also needed to stay active um, and, and do my own things and writing became that own thing. And so it was sort of my, a bit of an indulgence, um, and again, my first love being fiction, I was, you know, writing these really tortured short stories. Um, and, uh, you know, but that's, that's something that gave me some solace. It gave me some me time um, in the midst of parenting, which, you know, is, is a very intense undertaking. Uh, at least it was for me. And, um, and then I stumbled into uh, 
this site called Literary Mama where they were looking for columnists. So this would be nonfiction, personal essay writing, which I had not really done. And, um, and I thought, okay, well, I'll give this a try. You know, I'll, I'll audition for this. And I had um, my ex-husband and I had just adopted um, our second child. And so I thought, well, I'll pitch them a column on um, being an adoptive parent because uh, Literary Mama has these niche columns. So there's somebody writing about some specific um, aspect of motherhood. So they didn't have anyone at that time writing about um, being an adoptive parent. So I, you know, sort of jumped into that. And I did, uh, I, I got the position. I was a columnist there for four years. Um, it was unpaid writing, but it led to me getting opportunities to write for print. So suddenly I, I write about parenting now. Um, and, mm-hmm. and then that's when the fiction started to kind of fall by the wayside because you can get paid uh, more easily and more quickly for nonfiction than you can fiction. Okay. And so I started pursuing, um, you know, some magazines and things like that and, you know, pretty good rates at that time. And then 2008, the market collapsed and, you know, publishing just changed forever. Um, rates dropped, mag- r- rates dropped, magazines folded. A lot of magazines started using freelancers less or using freelancers but paying them less. And, uh, and then that's when that sort of patchwork quilt started um, mm-hmm. around the same uh, – or prior to that in 2005 um, or 2006, my divorce was finalized. And so – you know, then I was like, okay, I really need to find a way to make a living at this. Uh, I was no longer, you know, a stay-at-home mom. I was a work-at-home mom. Um, and so then it became, you know, you know, writer for hire, you know, looking for opportunities to publish, you know, but still writing things that were very thoughtful, writing about parenting, writing about um, where parenting intersected with race and, and gender and also pop culture. And so that became kind of a beat for a while. And then, my ex-husband and I, in 2008, launched um, a blog called Co-Parenting 101, um, and uh, we also launched a blog talk radio show on co-parenting, and we uh, co-hosted with a, another blogger who had a co-parenting site. Um, and all of that led up to our book um, coming out in 2013 called Co-Parenting 101, Helping Your Kids Thrive in Two Households After Divorce. And so then... You know, so for those years, I guess between 2008 and 2000, really through 2015 or so, you know, co-parenting was the brand. You know, through mm-hmm. social media, that's how I really became branded. And so most of my writing was around parenting or co-parenting mm-hmm. or both. Um, and uh, But still, you know, writing about race from time to time, writing about pop culture for time from time to time, um, marketing the book, doing speaking engagements around the book, having um, clients for editing and writing and things like that. So I had a lot of balls in the air. But mm-hmm. um, so it was, it's just been this really um, windy path. It has not been linear at all. And, and I have no regrets about that. Um, but I'm happy to really be able to focus mostly on, on my fiction now. Um, I have a piece to share today that's a piece of nonfiction that, you know, still percolates from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm no longer, you know, looking to say, oh, you know, I got to write something about this latest thing that happened around, you know, parenting and race. And I got to try and pitch it to the New York Times or, or whatever. Or, you know, this site is looking for, this publication is looking for writers to write about this topic, I want to submit something, uh, or anthology. I just, I don't do that um, as much anymore. I really focused on 
submitting my fiction and and hopefully um, selling the short story collection. Uh, but every now and then there there's something that uh, that is pressing that I will write nonfiction for. Um, but I like that it's it's driven by my creative urges now and not necessarily the need to to make money. Mm-hmm. Although making money is also yes. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I'm I'm one of those people who I uh, frequently nudge people about that. You know, you can go to people's readings, you can read stuff online, but buy and buy them as close as you can to how they're created rather than always online through the major sellers. You know, it's, it's so cool to to be able to hear somebody read and, and buy their book and get them to sign it. And, and I think that, that we need to remember that, that we shouldn't expect all of our um, writing to come to us for free. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. My absolutely. Listeners, pay I the writers. <laughs> That's right. I, and whenever I can, I try to buy books in hardcover. Uh-huh. You know, I think that's really, really important as well. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I am old school enough that I have no interest in reading books on technology in terms of on devices. I'd like pages. Oh, I don't me want, too. <laughs> I don't want paper. Don't give me an event flyer. You know, it's like, don't hand me that kind of paper. I can find that online. But with it's something I'm going to read, you know, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, I want a book in my hands. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and that's what I'm excited about. I really want to get my um, short story collection published because I, I have you know, I'm in different anthologies, and then the next step is I've co-authored a book, my co-parenting book, my name is on the cover, but I want a book where it's just my name on the cover. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh-huh. that's the goal. Yeah. And and how interesting that when you started college as the first in your family, and the first generation of college students in your family, with the idea that, you know, writing is not a real job. This is not what I'm going to do. It doesn't matter if I like it, but I need to do something else that's going to yeah. be how I, how I spend my 40-plus hours a week earning money. And then that transition happened, and I think mm-hmm. that's, that's lovely, too, that it wasn't what you expected, and it is where you needed to be and where you ended up. Yep, exactly, exactly. And uh, with having children as well, I'm wondering, is writing something that they also find important for themselves? It turns out, yes. And I, you know, I always try and give my my girls credit because um, too often when you're, in their case, you know, with me as a writer, when they have done some excellent work, you know, people will say, well, oh, well of course, because of your mom. And I think that that really um, isn't fair. Um, and it really undermines um, and, and discounts uh, their ability and their hard work. Um, so my oldest daughter is a um, first-year college student, and a couple of years ago um, she won a, the a Carnegie Mellon essay competition. Wow. They do an annual Martin Luther King essay competition, and and um, they decide that competition's been around for almost 20 years, and they decided to anthologize the best pieces, and one in her piece was one that was selected. Um, for that anthology so um but you know she doesn't she you know writing almost seems effortless to her so she doesn't Uh identify as a writing writer Uh Uh but um she's she's very adept at it um i did not give her any writing lessons or anything like that she's just (laughs) always been a reader i think being a, Uh a reader 
when you, you know, good stuff in, good stuff out, I think. Not to, you know, yeah. it's not that simple, but I think that has really made a difference for her. My daughter, who is in the eighth grade, um, she identifies more as a writer and she um, works on, uh, she likes to write fiction and she's written um, a number of things for school and then working, she's working on something outside of school. Um, and so she's really into, you know, dialogue and humor and, um, you know, just a lot of great imagery and, and her use of language is, is just phenomenal. So I enjoy reading her work and, and look forward to, to seeing her work, um, you know, come, come to, you know, fruition. You know, she has, I think, a novel in progress that she's working on right now. Um, and she has resisted, as has her sister, my attempts to say, hey, there's this writing camp, you know, for teenagers, uh-huh. and they don't want any parts of that. So <laughs> hey, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting. It's funny, and I think about we have two sons who are grown now, and, and our younger son started carrying a little notebook around during high school, I became aware of it, and and uh, it was it never. It wasn't something he wanted to talk about. So it's like, okay, you know, whatever it is, it is. And then after he graduated from high school, finally he told us that that his his dream is stand is stand up comedy was it, it's something he does now. But but so so he had this little notebook where he was always writing down ideas, you know. Mm, but it mm-hmm. was private. It was very private for him. At that point, mm-hmm. and then and then suddenly he's going to these open mics and performing in front of audiences in Kansas City. It's like, oh wow! <laughs> so he he didn't right. tell us, but he did his thing, and that's still, you know, it, it's cool to see, you know, how that works for people. That some people, it seems like just it seems like something they have to do. It's not so much a choice, is is the way I observe it with people. True, I, I feel the same way. Yeah, yeah. And because you're in Pittsburgh and our listeners are all over, I, I do want to ask you, since I, I mentioned the Bridge series and Jason mm-hmm. and Chris Collins, tell us a little bit about some of the things that are going on in Pittsburgh that you're involved with, with writing and performing there. Mm-hmm. Sure. So the Bridge series um, is just a brilliant idea that, that Chris had with uh, Jason Baldinger, who's uh, another writer. And um, they brought, they went to have um, writing and activism intersect. You know, we've got an amazing um, community of writers here um, and certainly um, many organizations doing good work on behalf of the community to help um, our community. And they had this idea to um, showcase the writers and then have the proceeds benefit these organizations that tend to be smaller don't have always have the big uh, name recognition or, or the larger community support. And so to raise some awareness of these organizations and the people they serve um, and people get to come out and hear a fantastic lineup of writers. So it's a yeah. win all around for everybody. Yeah. And the thing that I love is that they were intentional about this being something that showcased um, not just the usual suspects in Pittsburgh. And so um, I was interviewed uh, by Litzberg, uh, which is a, a resource uh, here uh, around literary um, folks and, and our work. And uh, they, I was interviewed about the Bridge series. And one of the things I said is, you know, let's just be, you know, really frank, or as the kids say, let's keep it 100. Many times when you go, most times when you go to literary events here in the city, um, 
they're featuring white writers, and that's not for lack of black and uh, other people of color. They're not. It's not for lack of people of color writers in the city or people that could be brought in from elsewhere. Um, I think it there has to be an intention set to make mm-hmm. that happen. And so Jason and Chris were very intentional. So they were intentional about the group of people they pulled together mm-hmm. as the informal board for the bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're a diverse group. Um, and so when you do that, um, and the end, you're very clear, you know, we're trying not to have, you know, the usual all white lineup, you know, who do we know? And so everybody right. is digging into their networks and, um, and, and, and we're not being gatekeepers, you know, we're being gateways to people um, accessing audiences and audiences accessing really rich work um, uh-huh. from writers that they may not have heard of. And so, uh, you know, there's no MFA gatekeeper. I don't have an MFA, you know, so we have writers who from the MFA world and writers who aren't from the MFA world. And, um, and we've had writers who have books and writers who don't have books. So, uh, so I think we, our series is, special for lots of reasons. It's diverse in many, many different ways. It's not just diverse on the surface. It's diverse in intention. um, And there's an authenticity there that I think um, is unique to us. Fortunately, I'm I'm happy we exist, but I wish it wasn't unique in the city. I wish that, you know, we had 10 bridge series um, so that any night of the week, you know, you, that, you know, this is always what you get when you go to a literary event in Pittsburgh, you're always going to get a wide range of voices and experiences and, and perspectives. That's very cool. And, and so it's so important and so needed. And, you know, I, I remember, I must, I can't remember when I talked and it's Chris Collins. I'm referring to Christopher Collins, um, mm-hmm. who, who was telling me about starting this series, um, which is something that did happen after the election and inauguration. Yeah. Yeah. And that needed to raise some voices and, it's really cool to hear how that has progressed and is growing. And, and I want to give a shout out to a, to a, a sort of related uh, comparable group uh, that's a national thing called the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture. I don't know whether okay. you have heard about this, but, but it's a citizens people's movement. It's not a government thing. Um, and the, the, one of the leaders, Arlene Goldbard, is somebody who has been working in elevating culture as a priority in things like planning. So, so in terms of when cities, you know, are making decisions about things, and this this thing has grown into the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture. Um, people can can look at the website U.S. DAC.US and find this statement of values where part of it's about everybody belonging. And, and USDAC provides some templates um, periodically, a couple times a year for some national activities um, that can be done in whatever community, like we do the storytelling thing for what becomes what's called the People's State of the Union um, every year. And, and there are these wonderful things about art and belonging and so many different artists across our country who are doing so much important stuff like you guys are doing with the Bridge series and, and helping people connect around that, you know, sharing ideas, you know, getting getting some sort of fuel for our own work and our own communities by knowing that other people are doing this too, which to me parallels this whole thing about bringing art and particularly art by diverse artists um, in front of people so that everybody in the audience can go, 
wait, that that part that that person is talking about, that's me too, but I haven't mm-hmm. encouraged, you know, to raise that. And so I, I, I'm a huge fan and advocate and, and helper for certain kinds of bringing art in ways that that benefit people in their like emotional well-being as well as maybe they get some ideas for improving their own art you know maybe lots mm-hmm. of but I, I do a thing every year on world suicide prevention day um, which this year was poets and storytellers and comedy <laughs> and drag and music and, <laughs> and it was all about bringing different people together you know with mm-hmm. at the mic and and diverse people in the audience and and art becomes that way that we can bring people together sometimes who wouldn't necessarily be together. And, I, and right. I that connecting thing, I love that a lot. Right. And that's that's why I wanna make sure people know about the bridge. And you mentioned Litzburg, and I'll put that link out there too. And and I mm-hmm. think it was probably Chris who had told me about that to, you know, here's yeah. how to find things in the literary community of Pittsburgh that there's so much good going on and, and get out and experience it. Be right. part of it. Make right. it happen. <laughs> right. And, you know, and we want to make these connections and, and we want to, you know, celebrate each other. But I also keep in mind what James Baldwin said, which is artists are here to disturb the peace. And so, you know, I, I want people to come out and have a good time, but I also want people to be uncomfortable. I want to be made yeah. uncomfortable uh, by somebody else's art if it's going to help me to be a better citizen, you know, a better um a better uh, ally, a better parent. Um, so, you know, so I think it, it's it's both and. Yes, yes. And I love that you, you referenced that particular quote. Here in Lawrence, Kansas, where I am, is also the home of a man named Dave Lowenstein, who is a muralist, a community muralist, whose projects projects really are across the world. They're, they're not um, Midwest United States. Based. And, and, Dave says a couple things, um, and he's also the, as we're called, field agent for the Lawrence, Kansas um, affiliate of the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture. But anyway, Dave Dave says that, that um, murals are visual poetry, and we had a mural on a building in downtown Lawrence that was um, raising awareness of prominent African-American writers in, in Kansas at different times, and it had a quote from Gwendolyn Brooks. And the quote included that line, we are each other's magnitude and bond. And and that building and mural were torn down. And then um, Dave and some some other friends sort of negotiated, I don't know quite what word with it, with the developers to reimagine this mural um, that was called the pollinators, as in these people's pollinating ideas and impact of into Kansas from American, American culture. And when the the new the reimagined pollinators was first unveiled, in in Dave's talking about that, he shared that same quote. You know that artists are here to disturb the peace. You know that we need art as a way of waking us up. Sometimes mm-hmm. that's, that's mm-hmm. what catches our attention, um, and and I love that that you know this this connection that you yeah. mentioned this, and it, it gets me thinking about this thing in my own community and the power of art. So that's really cool. 
And I know that you said that that in terms of your own writing, a lot of it until somewhat recently, a lot of what's public about your writing has been your nonfiction, um, mm-hmm. making that chat that transition um, to being able to focus more on your fiction, and and in that as we're segueing into your own writing again, I wonder if now would be a, a time when sharing a little bit of the story and the piece that you mentioned about your father, if this would be a mm-hmm. good time for that. Sure. Um, and before I do, I do want to mention, because I, I had actually forgotten, um, I was thinking, do I have any fiction online that's not like from 2002 and totally embarrassing? Um, and actually, I do. I, I recently published um, my first piece of fiction in about 15 years um, in Apogee Journal. Um, it's a short story that I um, intend to include in um, my collection. Uh, and the collection uh, I'm calling so far The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. And, uh, and this story in Apogee Journal is called Eula. And it's an apogee number nine. Um, and they don't publish, um, I guess they do publish some stories online, but it, in the print, you have to, to order it. So uh, it's a great collection. I don't say that just because I'm in it, but it is a, a nice collection. And apogee is one of those uh, sites that is very intentional about um, having a, a broad range of, of voices. So um, that's available. Um, but in terms of the, the piece about my father that you and I were talking about, um, before we went on the air, um, I had shared that uh, I first attempted, you know, 2002 was like a big year for me in, in attempting things. So uh, I, you know, I, was, I attempted to, you know, finally write about my father who I had a very uh, difficult relationship with. Um, and it was like these 10 really long pages of, um, you know, everything that ever went wrong. And there was, you know, this pivotal event and, um I got it all down and it was just, you know, emotionally draining. And, um, and I thought, okay, where should I submit this for publication? And at the time, you know, like a lot of new writers, like, of course, I'm going to submit this to the Atlantic because of course that's where I got it. I got to be published in the Atlantic because uh-huh. I was very new. I didn't know about, you know, this world of other journals and things like that, but everything was going to go to the Atlantic at that time. Um, but thankfully, I had mentors who saved me a lot of embarrassment and a lot of time, and, uh, and, and they were my early readers. And, and they both had a similar reaction, which is, you know, this is very expressive. You know, it's very, your pain is palpable. It's, you know, it, it's, it's coming off the page. Um, but this is not necessarily artistic expression, you know, and not that they tried to, you know, define it, but you know, sort of like the, that one Supreme Court justice said about pornography, you know it when you see it, you know it when you don't see it. Um, uh-huh. and, uh, and, and so this was, this was not ready for public consumption. That was the, the view that, or the perspective that I, I got from them, which was really a gift. And, and you know, having great mentors and, and great readers, I've been really, really um, blessed in that regard that throughout my time as a writer, I've always had people who would read my work and give me honest feedback even when it hurt. Um, I've also had cheerleaders. I mean, I think cheerleaders are important too, but I think it's important to have both. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, as critical readers, you know, my mentors said, this is not ready. Um, but I didn't know what to do to make it ready. So I just left it alone. I just, you know, walked away from it and started doing other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 15 years later, um, I just felt like trying something else. Um, I have always been um, a fan of Flash, 
fiction and nonfiction. Um, the very first writing, formal writing class I took, um, a community writing class, um, was a fiction, a flash fiction course. And I've just, you know, not been able to, to nail that form. And, um, you know, because I'm writing 10 pages about my dad, so yeah. flash is just not something that comes naturally to me. Uh-huh. Um, but I, you know, had been practicing it more and had an idea about um, how to write about my father in a much more succinct way. Mm-hmm. And so I essentially took those, you know, what I had been, you know, feeling and thinking in those 10 pages, you know, 15 years ago, and I, I've managed to get it into 599 words um, <laughs> in this uh, flash nonfiction piece called Whiting. Whiting has been called the hot dog of the sea because it's so cheap. But fishermen love this tasty sport fish because it grabs the lure hard and puts up a good fight. My father said, every Sunday morning, while your mother lies across town dying, I will make you fried whiting, grits, and cat's head biscuits to make up for telling a judge that you weren't mine. Something to fill your 33-year-old belly for that time I tried to pass you off as my little sister to my new girlfriend when you were three. A hearty breakfast for those times when you were in grade school and I took you to bars and fed you french fries with ketchup as you fed quarter after quarter into the pinball machine while I drank bottle after bottle of pink champagne. Some southern hospitality for asking you to call other women mama. A home-cooked meal for that time I got you a car but didn't make the payment so the repo man tracked you down at college and took it back. Something to stick to your ribs for those times when I said I would come pick you up, take you to the fair, give you lunch money, but didn't. My father said, I have already buttered the grits and the biscuits for you. You know how to pick the bones out the whiting, don't you? I do the math. The brittle calculus that this fatherless girl has learned. Take the value of the car my father did not actually buy me. Track 33% rage because the repo man kept his gun holstered. Add five figures in unpaid child support, then carry the time he bragged to me, I got me a white girl. The answer equals exactly six Sundays worth of breakfast, a fraction of what it cost me to gather up the pieces of a girl shattered, shattered into bits like broken seashells gathered from the sands of the ocean floor. My father said, this is your inheritance. Spread it like a balm on your broken heart. Some fried whiting, some grits, and cat's head biscuits. You know, they call them cat's head biscuits because they're as big around and fluffy as a cat's head. I did not know that. For 33 years, I put up a good fight. But my mother lies dying across town. Cancer rages, and believing that I must always be looked after in this world, my mother has asked my father to make things right with me, and she has asked me to let him. She does not, however, give us a blueprint for this. So come Sunday morning, I eat breakfast at my father's house. I come again and again until my mother dies one August morning. Then I travel a thousand miles back to my other life, the life I left behind to be with my mother as she transitioned while riding upon wave after wave of our laughter, spiked with the louded from this world to the next, after 52, two short years. I go back to my life with two wide-eyed daughters and a soon-to-be ex-husband, a man who is a prized blue marlin of a father. By December, my father will also be dead, a massive stroke. I don't know this during those six Sunday morning breakfasts, 
I simply enjoy. I close my eyes and tell myself this is what love tastes like. Every bone in the whiting is an apology. Every grain of the grits an apology. The cat's head biscuit, a mound of apologies. Everything my father does not say. Wow. You did it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and you know, it's we all have our experiences that, that have some similarities and differences and and I have to say that that it brought up some some of my story with my father who my parents split when I was about six. And you know, it's not the same story but but there is those those emotional connections of what you're sharing and you know, what I experienced and similarities and differences and it kind of takes my breath away. <laughs> I heard you gasping. I thought a couple yes. of times that I, yes. I um, yeah, I, yeah, hard stuff. Yeah. And needs to be said, you know, and this takes me to the work that I do as a social worker. One of my core beliefs is that we need to let our thoughts and feelings see the light of day and sometimes mm. somebody hearing or reading that piece that you just did that that story with your father and mother and that may be a way that they get inspired to say some things that they've been trying to keep inside that grow into this huge ball of shame you know Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really important, and and that piece is very effective. So thank you for that. Thank you. And and so you mentioned that that of course this is a a piece based on your experience, and you're in this time when you're really getting to move into your fiction work as well. So I'm I'm wondering about there's this part of me going, but this piece is so powerful. Are you sure you want to write fiction? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can do both. Uh -huh. <laughs> like okay. fiction just kind of broke through the, uh, the 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 mass of fiction that I've been sort of swimming in for uh, yeah. for this past year. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, the, the 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 fiction stories are are fun too. Um, I shouldn't say too, this was not fun, but, um, that, you know, they come from a different kind of place. Um, mm -hmm. they're still personal as well. Um, but I think that I'll probably always continue to do both. Um, some in the past I've taken things like, you know, my experience with my father or with my mother or other people, and there's been such a temptation to fictionalize them. Mm -hmm. Um, and um and and so you know in the short story collection there are some autobiographical um elements but mm -hmm. something else i've been I, i've experimented with um is the hermit crab essay form where the nonfiction piece takes the form of something else so it's almost like i have to come at these things sideways you know in a way instead of facing them head on so you know talking about my grief um around uh my mother's death, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, have written it as in like a Cosmo do's and don'ts of dating style thing in terms of how to grieve. Um, that hasn't been published yet. Um, but it's there, you know, this whiting piece is the most direct that I've been. But even that, you know, there's a lot of play around the, the, 
fish theme and the math and numbers, you know, it's not just, yeah. The word whiting, that, you know, like when you said that was, you know, I thought, oh, this, there are a lot of possibilities for what that word stands for. Yeah. 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 Um, And so even in writing nonfiction, I feel like I, you know, bring some, some storytelling elements Mm -hmm. to it and, and it's, you know, and I'm inclined to take non-traditional approaches to it. Um, and sometimes I think it's, it's a, an avoidance technique, but, um, but it works. <laughs> it works. Uh-huh. Well, I, I love that the, the, there is a difference between, you know, kind of academic writing and, and writing that draws people in, even when both are in fiction. And then mm-hmm. there's, of course, a, a link between fiction that that um, relates to people's experiences, and and it, it comes out mm-hmm. in stories. Right now, I'm 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 reading actually at this at this uh, this week, whatever during this time. I'm also reading um, from somebody that you probably know, Scott Silk. His book Muskrat Friday Dinner, uh, and as he's also a Pittsburgh-based uh, writer thinking that you probably have crossed paths a few times and, and reading it, that these poems that are that are to me very much like stories as opposed to mm. what somebody might might define as a poem and, and where that takes me. I love I love where reading takes me. I guess that's mm-hmm. uh, indirectly and I say it directly. I I'm not so much a movie person as reading and letting my brain do a lot of imagination around creating the scenes and connecting to things. I'm much more excited about reading than watching. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And humor, you know, humor is a big part of it too. Like I've, I've try to, you know, or not so much intentional. It just happens that way. Again, I think it might be some deflection on my part, but um, I wrote something for a site called Full Grown People called um, How How Can You Be Mad at Someone Who's Dying of Cancer? Uh And it's about um, the last, uh, really my relationship with my mother as a whole, um, but then a focus on, you know, her last few months of life when she was in hospice. And and there was a lot of laughter, surprisingly. Um, And so... I was very careful because I always worry when I write about my mother that, um, you know, people will think, you know, she wasn't a good mother or something like that. Um, And so, you know, striking that balance of how to, you know, talk about the things that were painful, but also talk about, you know, what a wonderful um, mother she was. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, and humor was a part of that. And so, again, you know, it wasn't this sort of just straight, piece um but you know it has a lot of anecdotes and it does have um some humor and and uh and that's you know that's and it took me a long time you know my both my parents died in 2005 and only in the last couple of years so it took me about a decade to really really uh write about them i wrote a bit about uh their deaths when i was still writing for literary mama um shortly after their deaths but you know it was kind of my column so that's a particular format and, and formula. Um, and I really was careful to write on the surface because I was still so raw and mm-hmm. was still so in the middle of it yeah. um, that I just couldn't really go there. And, and I hated that people said, oh, you're a writer. So, you know, 
your writing will be cathartic for you and that'll be how you, um, you know, process your grief. And I just, if I could say anything, it was stop telling people how to grieve. Right. Um, <laughs> just stop. Um, yeah. Even if you, you mean well, um, it's not helpful. Um, and, and that's not, that's not how I grieved. And, um, but writing that piece um, about my mother and then writing this piece about my father have felt like um, bookends for something. It's, it felt like, okay, this is what's been under the surface, you know, for a decade or more here. Um, and, and maybe there's more that I want to say, you know, mm-hmm. at some other point, but, um, but I couldn't force it. You know, I couldn't force it. And both pieces, uh, the one about my mom is really long and this one is really short, um, but they both, I, you know, kind of wrote them in, you know, pretty quickly. So again, I think these things kind of just um, marinate for a while, uh, a decade in my case, and then they come out, you know, when they're, when they're ready. And, and grief, like you're saying, is, is one of those things that we don't, we don't know what tools we need and we don't talk as a, as a society, whatever that would mean. In general, people don't talk a lot about grief and, and how to do that. And, and like you're saying that people think they know and give you suggestions, you know, well, if you're not feeling better in six months, then I'll be worried about you. It's like, don't do <laughs> right. what, what, I, what I typically tell people because I do a lot of work with suicide bereavement is, you know, whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're doing, as long as you're staying safe, it's probably okay. <laughs> you know, it's just like, don't, don't think it has to look a certain way, you know, and don't judge yourself for doing it wrong. Cause I think sometimes that's part of our trauma is that we think we're not doing it right. We're not crying enough. We're not crying, we're crying too much, you know? Mm-hmm. whatever, you know? Um, and so, so somebody may, you know, read, things that you've written from your experience and it may wake up some things inside of them that they need, which is really important. I hope so. Love, but it doesn't always look yeah. the same. Just like love does. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I do want to go back uh, just a little bit. I don't want to try to stick us here, but you mentioned, you know, you talked to, uh, earlier about your co-parenting is kind of a brand and I, and parenting and parenting and raised and I'm thinking, man, in these times, and I, I, for me, so much public hatred has come out since the before and since the election. I, I wonder if there are some ways that you your work with with parenting, with writing about parenting, if there are any things about that that you would would like to share or. I'm just I'm just thinking because that's a, such an important issue now too, you know. I, I think about things. And this is from way back when um, I'm I'm white skinned. My my older son grew up with his best friend uh, all through grade school. They, they met in kindergarten and were friends. Um, African American um, boy. His dad's a pastor of a small church. You know, and, and when kids are little, at least in my community, people don't pay as much attention to them. But when they were making that transition to junior high, I was saying to my son, you know, things are going to get different in ways for you and Daniel as you guys are getting bigger and taller and older. And 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 talking to him about the ways that his friend was 
going to be treated differently, unfairly, that things were going to happen and that, that Cassidy needed to be aware of that. Uh, you know, and and so we had some conversations that I hoped planted some seeds, you know, to, to help him identify that because of the way he looked, he had privileges that his friend didn't. And he and he needed to make sure that he stood up for his friend in situations when somebody needed to, those kinds of things. Not stand in the mm-hmm. way, but stand up, you know. Right. And and so for me there's there's I'm aware of a lot of issues of parenting because of the climate in our country being so publicly racist. And I'm not saying it's more racist, but it's more publicly racist now. And and any things that you, you know, would say to, to kind of guide parents or whomever about that? You know, I have not published um, anything about um, race, parenting since the election, um, unless you count Facebook posts as publishing, and I don't, um, because like a lot of, of, of people of color, I'm really tired, and I, um, I leave the work to folks like you, to white mm-hmm. people, to do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there have been resources and I'm sure you've seen them as well, you know, on the conversations that white people need to be having with their children, like the one that you had very organically with your son. Um, You know, but this, this new, uh, this era that we're in now, as you said, of it being very public, it's always been there, but being very public um, is waking people up who had the privilege to be asleep to it. um, And, and, you know, thankfully are are looking for resources and those resources are there. but I do feel um, pretty strongly that this is um, this is white people's work mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Um, white parents' work right now, um, and that's kind of where I, I, I've landed on it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's that's a, a powerful statement for people to hear. You know, it, it is the work that those of us who've had this privilege all along need to acknowledge we need to do some things. We need to, to make change. Yeah. Right. Because as you said, you know, um, and I, I like the way you put it, that, it, you know, it's more public, you know, um, because we, you know, also because an African-American, you know, we've been having the conversations. We've been writing the about our, our experiences. We've been shouting them from the rooftops um, mm-hmm. for as long as, as we've been able Um and it's not been heated. And so, and we didn't create this mess, you know, it's not our, we didn't create it. It's not ours to, uh, to dismantle. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's a, an important piece of it too, is not that um, we don't have things to say, we've said it and, and, yeah. and we've said it and we've died saying it. Um, and we're still dying saying it and we're still dying. Um, so, um, you know, I think about, you know, the Women's March and, um, and uh, um, uh, my friend Vanessa German, who is an artist here in Pittsburgh and, and worldwide, um, she talked about how um, a white woman who had been at the march commented to her that um, it was so lovely how that march was so peaceful and there were no problems. 
Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Vanessa's response was, because you didn't ask for anything. And so, you know, here's an opportunity that, you know, for, for white people like yourself who, you know, are seeing in some cases for the first time, you know, what we have had to um, endure on a regular basis, um, when you have these platforms, when you have police who are going to take photo ops with you and, and hug you and, and, and not, um, you know, put a foot on your neck, what are you going to do with that platform? What are you going to ask for? What are you going to demand? You know, where are you going to put your bodies um, on the front lines for us? Um, you know, will white women turn out in droves for a march for racial injustice? It's like the one that's being planned at the end of this month. Um and, 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 and get between us and the cops, you know. So, so there's a lot to be done. Um, there's a lot of work to be done. And so I just encourage white people to do the work. I, I appreciate you saying that loud and clear, you know. It's important. There's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done. And we are going to get to what you working on these days this fiction and you mentioned humor and and i know that that is to me that's that's one of those life-saving things you know laughing every day is important it's one of those muscles we need to exercise as well as other parts of our body and and i think that's that's important not as a way of avoiding things but also sometimes we can't, we'll get stuck if we don't also let some, some light in and humor sometimes is the way. Humor is sometimes also a way to, to get in people's faces. And, you know, I mm-hmm. actually appreciate that too. <laughs> wait, you just said that. Wait, 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 wait. I wasn't expecting that. It's like, yeah, I know. So <laughs> right. So you're writing and you're, you're doing this work with the bridge and you're, you know, you have a job, you have kids, you've got all these things going on. And it sounds like now is a really good time for your writing. Are there some, yeah, certain, yeah go ahead. I was going to say, I also want to mention, uh, and I, I mentioned Vanessa German and um, she and I are working together on a, a project on a collection of words, um, writing and, and art, visual art by black women in the Pittsburgh area on the subject of tenderness. Oh. Um, and so I've been working on that project with her as, as an editor and, and really look forward to, um, to that piece, uh, that, that work coming, that collection coming out um, as well. Is that coming out as, uh, as an, like a display as a as an art show. oh as a book okay. as a book i mean it, it will have other uh incarnations uh, uh-huh. but on a, a fundamental level it will be a book yeah mm-hmm. and you two are the lead on that project yes yeah, so we're um editing it and um it, it's an amazing collection of, of writers you know published unpublished uh as young as 15 years old yeah. uh, we just put out a call and and um you know People don't always think about black women and tenderness together, um, but we wanted writers to think about that. Um, and not all of our contributors think of, you know, identify as writers, but we wanted black women in the area to think about that and what came to mind and, and to, 
write it down or to you know create it as visual art and and share it with us and so um so i'm really excited to be able uh, when we're able to share that collection with people so i wanted to make sure to, to mention that um yeah so you know there are all these different uh incarnations um and um and there's a lot a, a lot happening right now but um but really and truly my focus going forward um I want it to be on the short story collection um, and other things will kind of come and go. I don't know that I'm capable of just doing one thing, um, maybe all those years as a freelancer, but, um, but yeah, that, that's what I look forward to, uh, yeah. to being able to make my, my, the majority of my writing time. Uh-huh. So with, because my, my set of people that I connect with in Pittsburgh are mostly poets and, and obviously, mm-hmm. Jason and and Chris, Jason Baldinger and and Chris Collins are two of those. Are, are you tempted to to see where you go with poetry as well, or have have you? <laughs> I wrote some really bad poetry again, two thousand two <laughs> to two thousand five. That was that that was that was rough. Uh, and again, hopefully those poems will never see the light of day. I didn't. I I think there's one that's published at Literary Mama, um, but no, I'm not. I, you know, and I, I have friends who are poets and, and all respect that, you know, it, it is a, a special gift um, and, and not one that I have. But um, but I certainly learn from them, you know, as writers in general. Um, but no, that, you know, and as much as I talk about trying different genres and things like that, I can't say that I've ever in the last 15 years, I don't know that I've ever thought to myself, you know, this should be a poem. Just nah. <laughs> well, I, I might nah. need to get back with you after this comic book project. Yeah, well, yeah, that's. <laughs> and here's why I'm yeah, saying comic, that. Totally different. <laughs> yeah, but here's why I'm saying that because I, I have, I have again, I've talked to many writers who comics are were an important part of that growing up and the themes in comics, you know, the the yeah. and that kind of stuff. And and also um, a lovely human and poet in in uh, Topeka, Kansas, Dennis Etzel Jr. When we were talking about his writing at one point, he said, you know, the the comic um, genre actually influenced my poetry a lot because in comics, mm. the the words have to be very minimal and high impact mm-hmm. because of the way that you know the the pages are designed with the squares. Right. You know. And so that's why I was thinking, well, perhaps after you work with this intense comic project and and uh, you're exposed to that brevity, you know, very intensely as you're working on this project, it, it may be something that starts coming out of you in new ways, too. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But I, I think that, you know, that brevity is not my strong suit at all. So that, that has, I mean, even, you know, like I said, I was struggling writing Flash. You know, uh-huh. getting uh-huh. something to 500 words and stuff. Um, so, so yeah. But you know, I'm learning not to say never. So you, you know, you never know. But, uh, <laughs> but right now, it's it's not in the plan. Uh huh. Okay. Well, I won't push any farther on that one. It was just, <laughs> just a little, little sure. bit of secret. So, for our listeners, as we're we're getting here to the end of the hour, what are some okay. of the best ways for them to to find? what you're doing, how they can find both when you're going to be appearing as well as things in print that will be sure people can buy. Oh, I wish I could say I have a, a website right now, but I don't. Um, 
So I tend to be, you know, pretty willing to Facebook friend people who um, who we have, you know, mutual friends in the writing world is, is pretty um, small. So often they're mutual friends. So I, you know, that's one way I post everything uh, that I do on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter as my name, Disha Filia. Okay. So uh, that's a, and I will, you know, promote things that I write there. Um, two places you can see, uh, oh, I'm sorry, one place you can see something from me monthly at the Rumpus. I have a column there called Visible Women Writers of Color. And every month I um, interview a different writer and um, it tends to update the third Wednesday of each month. The one just came out last week featuring um, my friend Faith Adiele. Um, so that's another one. Um, that's pretty much it for right now because with the focus on the fiction, it's, you know, I'm not sure where things are going to land, but follow mm-hmm. me on Twitter is probably my, my best advice. My mm-hmm. account is locked because now that I've gone corporate, but um, I'm more likely to accept um, follow requests on Twitter than Facebook. And like I said, Facebook, if we have some friends in common, I'll, I'll follow, but, um, but Twitter is good. Um, and let's see, to see other writing um, that I haven't mentioned on Brevity, um, I have two pieces at Brevity. One, they did two special issues, one race, um, and one gender. And for the gender issue, I have a piece there called Milk for Free. And uh, the prompt was, what, are, what were some of your earliest understandings of yourself as someone of a gender? And so I wrote a piece there called Milk for Free. And then uh, for the race issue, I did, um, this was a hermit crab essay um, in the form of a pop quiz. And it's called a, pi- a pop quiz for white women who want black women to be nicer in conversations about race. Mm. Real nice, long title. (laughs) Um, So those two pieces are at Brevity, and and I really like Brevity. Uh, And then, again, I mentioned that I have um, an essay at Full Grown People about my mother, um, how do you get mad at someone who's dying of cancer. Uh Very good. Yeah. So people can try to find you on social media. Things yeah. that are happening around Pittsburgh. My assumption is the Litzburg website yes. is a great way to find out about that, including things that you're doing. Sound good? Yes. All right. Yep. Sounds good. Thank you so much. This has been fun. Thank you. It's been fun. It's been challenging in terms of, you know, some of the issues that you've brought up. And I hope listeners heard and those of us with light skin pay attention and get that reminder that we have a lot of work to do. Um, we don't, yes. Have, yes, we need to do it. Just say they're right. You know, and that's always my thing is like, let's take actions, not just mm-hmm. say, well, I'm aware. Awareness doesn't cut. Right. So right. I want to remind, I haven't said your name in a while and I don't think you hit it either. So <laughs> we have been talking for an hour with this person who's in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, who is named Disha Filia. And we want you to see what she's doing, read her stuff, look for things coming up. Think about getting yourself to the Bridge series and do it. Good things going on in Pittsburgh, Kansas, including by Disha Filia. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marcia. Take care. You too. And so long to our listeners. <laughs>